Tonight on Farage, as energy bills are set to rise by £800 per household, are we at the mercy of Vladimir Putin? And let's talk fracking. Up in the northwest of England, big gas reserves. Should we be fracking in this country? And joining me on Talking Pints, Dr Andy Palmer, the former chief exec of Aston Martin. Well, I've been arguing for years and here for a couple of months on GB News that we really ought to be self-sufficient in terms of energy. And I say that because we have the means by which we can do it. It is, I think, completely bonkers that 10% of our electricity is imported via interconnectors across the English Channel, which means our friends in Paris, who are, you may have noticed, becoming rather less friendly just lately, could, at a moment, close the country down. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. And whatever Boris Johnson says about, by 2035, all of our electricity coming from renewables and nuclear as a combination with no need for fossil fuels at all, the fact is, for many, many years to come, we are going to need natural gas as a backup for the vast array of wind turbines we've built when they don't turn because the wind isn't blowing. So it's a fact that for a long time to come, we're going to need natural gas. Now, the price of natural gas, along with other commodities too, but the price of natural gas has absolutely rocketed. It's up about fivefold so far this year. And if you look at a household's energy bills, it's their electricity bills and their gas bills together, we are looking at an average household seeing bill increases of eight hundred pounds. Quite how Boris yesterday could talk about the cost of living going down, I don't know, but that's where we are. And yet at the centre of much of this is Putin's Russia. Now it's quite remarkable. In the wake of Brexit, in the wake of Trump winning in 2016, we went through the Russia hoax. I know all about it because I went through it too. Accused of being funded by the Russians, that somehow the Russians were behind all of it. And we horrible Brexiteers and Trumpites, we were all being funded by the Russians. Nothing could have been further from the truth. But actually, the people that were making themselves dependent upon Russia were those who threw those very accusations, in particular Germany, who've made themselves almost entirely reliant on Russian gas. Russia produces about a fifth of the world's natural gas, and the European Union is pretty much dependent upon it. Interesting, isn't it? that the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder is now on the board of Gazprom, the Russians' big state gas provider. All very cosy, all very nice. But Putin, over the course of this summer, has been releasing quantities of gas into the European market at a much lower level than normal. And what usually happens is European countries stock up on reserves of gas during the summer for when they need it most during the winter. Reserves are quite low in this country. They're virtually non-existent. But now Putin has said, over the course of the last couple of days, that he's quite prepared to release more gas to Europe, provided we approve Nord Stream 2. That will be the second major pipeline coming into the European Union, one that controversially bypasses the Ukraine. And it does seem to me that in terms of supply and in terms of price, we are, to some extent, at the mercy of Putin. But tell me what you think 
Am I over-exaggerating this or have I got it right? Let me know your opinions, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Are we now at the mercy of Putin or is that something of an exaggeration? Well, joining me to discuss all of this right now is Professor of Energy Policy in the Business School of the University of Greenwich, Professor Stephen Thomas. Stephen, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening. It is extraordinary, isn't it, the extent to which Germany uh, and much of Europe has made itself pretty dependent upon Russian gas. Yes, I mean, it's difficult for them. And Britain is in a very privileged place. We probably can have the best of all countries' options on natural gas. We have natural gas from the North Sea. We have pipelines to Norway, to Netherlands. We have LNG terminals. So we can take gas from pretty much anywhere in the world. In landlocked countries in Europe don't have that luxury. They don't have the ability to import LNG. So they don't have so much choice as we do. No, um, but they need that. But they do need gas. And uh, do you think it's fair of me to say that Putin has quite deliberately withheld large supplies of gas from the European, from the EU market, particularly this summer, uh, which leaves us pretty vulnerable to him heading into winter? I think uh, Putin may be trying to take advantage of the situation. Uh, It's a dangerous game for him to play because up until now, Russia has actually been a very reliable supplier of gas. There was one notorious incident a few years ago when East Europe was left without gas for a few days, but otherwise they have been 100% reliable. So if he starts making his gas seem very unreliable, people will start seriously to look elsewhere for the gas. So he will be shooting himself in the foot. But he does have, doesn't he? I mean, given that they produce about 20% of the world's natural gas production, you know, he does have the means, doesn't he, to some extent to mess around with the price of gas and possibly push it higher. Yes, I mean, so do all the producers of gas. I mean, it's it's uh, an internationally traded commodity. Uh, and because it's gas, it's particularly volatile because there are often very few substitutes. It's an essential purchase. You can't very easily store it. So it is by its nature going to be very volatile. I mean, it could happen in a month or so that the price has collapsed again. That's what international commodities do they go on this so-called hog cycle of rapid increases people piling into the market and lng suppliers will be looking at the price of gas and thinking hmm i wonder if i turned up the tap that would be rather nice for our gas producers so i don't want to minimize the scale of problem but it could go away quite quickly it might be a long-term thing if if we have a cold winter in europe uh, and our stocks are very depleted as they are, then it could be a problem for the whole year. And give me a thought on our supply of gas in this country and the fact that the government just a few years ago, you know, cut back our strategic storage resource. And we now have, I think I'm right in saying, uh, the ability to store 1.7% in strategic reserve of what we need each year. Yeah, we have never had large stores for for gas. We have always relied on having large production from the North Sea, which in effect could be storage because you can turn up or turn down gas. We don't 
have that luxury now. You know, other countries in Europe have many months of storage. We have a few days of storage. So we do need to look at our storage situation. Yeah. And what about, I mean, OK, you've mentioned the North Sea, and I know for half a century we've been getting natural gas out of the North Sea, but those reserves, you know, are not anything like as productive as they were. Just a, a thought on up in the northwest, we have, you know, potentially quite a large gas field that would need fracking uh, to extract it, and yet there's been a lot of propaganda against it. I mean, I, I mean, is there not an argument that says that in terms of energy it makes sense in a very uncertain, volatile world, that it makes sense for us to be energy independent? Well, in terms of gas, unless we were to cut off supply, uh, pipelines to the rest of Europe and we were sure we could remain self-sufficient, we can't get ourselves off the international price of gas. And no. if we fracked gas, we can't say to the fracked gas producers, you're going to sell it to us than less than the international price because they simply won't wear that. So it wouldn't, and we're not going to frack enough gas to affect the international price of gas. So I think frack gas, I mean, I don't want to get into the environmental issues it raises. I mean, it is clearly a greenhouse gas producer. Yeah. Um, I don't think frack gas is the answer. Well, you're, you may well be right about the price, because, as you say, there are international commodity markets, but in terms of supply, it might make us a bit less reliant on those pipelines. And finally, let me ask you the question that we're asking GB News viewers tonight. Have we put ourselves, have Western Europe, have we put ourselves at the mercy of Putin? I'm not sure that we have. I mean, Putin relies on, needs Europe as much as we need Putin at the moment. He can't afford to turn down gas and to lose sales of gas because the Russian economy is very dependent on selling gas for the rest of Europe. So, as I said, he could be shooting himself in the foot if he does try to uh, okay. restrict supplies to Europe. Stephen Thomas, thank you for joining us. And there you've got Stephen making the rationalist case that we're not at the mercy of Putin because he won't turn the taps off because he wants the income, and I totally get that. However, uh, there are often other factors at play in politics. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned fracking. And let's talk about that, because very large reserves of gas have been found up in the northwest of England, the Boland Reserve, as it's known. It's really interesting. A couple of years ago, I was up in Blackpool. It was a big BBC debate programme. And a series of questions came up, and I found an audience that were very on side with me, a very pro-Brexit audience in Blackpool, and I was getting lots of applause until the last question. And the last question was, should we, you know, here in Blackpool, should we be fracking for gas? And I said, well, I tell you what, it rather makes sense to me for us to be energy independent, for us to be self-sufficient. Uh, it means we're not, uh, we can't be held hostage by anybody else, and it would provide tens of thousands of well-paid jobs in the northwest of England, and it makes no difference to the environment whether we extract gas ourselves or whether we import it when it's been extracted somewhere else. And we are going to need gas for a long time to come. Well, boy, you know, we're seeing that right now. And I was astonished at the negative reaction that received from the audience. And it seemed to me that one of the most successful green 
propaganda campaigns against us, fracking for gas had been made in the northwest of England, and it had convinced an awful lot of people. They feared earthquakes, they feared all sorts of fires in their homes and problems. And I just thought, well, actually, why don't we actually get that debate going again as to whether we should be energy independent, and that would mean fracking gas in the northwest of England. So joining me now is author and columnist for Spiked, Rob Lyons, and researcher and author Laurie Laybourne Langton. Laurie, um, here's, here's the argument for fracking. The argument is that we're importing natural gas, we need to use it. Uh, the Boris Johnson vision of 2035 you know, is, is a long, long way away. And given that we need the stuff anyway, and given that there could be supply problems, that it makes sense to be self-sufficient and therefore to frack for gas in the northwest of England? Three problems. The first is that you can't go from nothing to something very quickly, right? We'd have to develop a whole massive fracking industry. The US took a couple of decades to get to the point that they, we now look at them as, as having developed. The second thing is, it's very different to what it's like in, in the US, right? The, the geology, the way the ground is set up in the UK is very different to how it is in the US. Population is more dense. There are more people packed in together. It's just much harder to do it here in the UK. So the gas field that you mentioned earlier yeah. got a lot of gas in it, right? But only a few percent of that is in any way viable that we could um, actually get anywhere near. A third thing is that, as we just heard from Professor Thomas just now, we are still at the mercy of international commodity markets when it comes to gas. <laughs> Unless we were to nationalize the entire fracking and gas industry in the UK and just turn in on ourselves, we're going to have to play the same prices we're seeing internationally. You know? And if we, if we say, do you know what? Our frack gas costs a load. Um, we don't want to pay for it. Then it's going to go abroad. So you know, those three reasons, alongside the, the big environmental reasons as well, mean that this is, just not, this is not a non-viable direction. The government has said that, and I agree with them. Well, I have to say, in answer to that, Laurie, I feel we should have started fracking years ago, personally. Um, on the population density, I mean, of course, you know, we are a much denser population than Montana, for argument's sake, in the USA. And I totally understand that, although there are quite large parts of the northwest of England that are lowly populated. But I understand you've made the case. Well, let's get a perhaps different point of view on all of this. Um, and I'm going to ask you, Rob, uh, you know, give me your argument why we should be fracking in the northwest of England. Well, because I think that um, having supplies of gas of your own, you know, I mean, as a backstop, there is a, that, there is a national security question. But I think the, the main uh, factors are the, you know, the world market for gas. You know, and on the day-to-day -day level, that's, that's re really what we're, we're talking about here. So it will make a small but you know, dent in the, in the world market price of gas. But it will also, if we're exporting this en masse, uh, then we will be bringing in revenue to the country. So you know, that, that it's a potential export opportunity as well. But, the, but you're right. We, the reason we're in this, this mess at the moment and why fracking right now would never get us out of, of this mess is because we should have been doing it starting to ramp up fracking 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah and we, we should start fracking as soon as possible um, so that we don't get into this mess uh, as badly as we are again. Um, well, Rob, uh, so, Rob, so, Rob, so, Rob yeah, strategically... Strategically, I absolutely agree with you. I think we should have started this years ago. However, the one point that Laurie and his side of the argument have made, um, and 
advertise, propagandize, choose whichever word you want. But the one argument that has had resonance amongst the residents of Blackpool and many other areas in the Northwest is the argument about geology. And the argument that, you know, one of the original shafts that was driven uh, caused a minor earthquake. And people hear the word earthquake and everyone starts to panic. How can we, how can we, Robert, put it to you, how can we reassure people in the northwest of England that going for gas extraction through fracking isn't a risk to them? Well, the, the, the word earthquake gets bandied around very, very easily these days. Things that would once have been called just minor tremors are now routinely being called earthquakes whenever it comes to fracking. Um, you know, I, mean, I read one report uh, recently of uh, the, the big earthquake in Blackpool a couple of years ago, uh, and one woman said it was, very, it was very scary. A plate fell off a shelf. Uh, that's you know, I mean, the, the levels of, uh, of uh, sort of vibration that we're talking about here aren't dissimilar to having a lorry drive past your front door or for construction work going on. And these aren't these kinds of uh, movements aren't exclusive to fracking by any means. They, they were, you know, a quarter of um, tre earth tremors in the UK in the 80s and 90s were caused by coal mining. Yeah, um, well, that's... The, Tremors are <laughs> yeah. also uh, a problem for geothermal energy. The, the bigger and deeper that you go with geothermal energy, the more likely you are to get a shift the ground. This is just you know, part and parcel of working with the earth when you have to do stuff underground. I think that these are a very minor hazard, and I think that the rules that have been set on fracking companies about when they have to stop operations uh, in the past, and obviously now we have a complete moratorium on it uh, yeah. in, uh, in England, but, but the, the, those rules were just simply too tight. They were unreasonable, given the dangers that were, that were being uh, pr presented by these very minor fine, earthquakes. Fine, No, you've made the point. So, Laurie, here's the point. You know, there is no form of extractive industry that doesn't lead to a few very minor earth tremors. But the truth of it is that your side of the argument have spread hysteria. Hysteria that has made us dependent on foreign sources of energy, which you never know, at some point might run out for strategic reasons. And you've denied tens of thousands of people in the northwest of England well-paid jobs. Um, that's quite a list of accusations to level at me. Well, they're not um, accusations. They're, de they're, they're debating points. Come on. I mean. I've, sure, sure. But I've never said any of these things, right? So when I said geology earlier, I wasn't talking about tremors. I, you know, I, I partially agree with you, Rob. You know, I, I, I never seen them. I've seen the reports about them. I'm sure they were scary to people. You know, the real issue here is not necessarily uh, the geology of there being tremors and stuff. It's just the way the ground works in the UK is different to the US. It's much harder and more expensive. And that's one of the many reasons why the market didn't work out before. But the main one is that you can't buck those commodity markets. I mean, you know this, Nigel, from I think your, your past in, in trade. I did trade like, commodities, yeah. yeah. You can't buck those markets. You know, it, it, right now, gas prices are high. Yep. We wouldn't, as Professor Thomas said, we wouldn't be able to make a dent on those prices with the kind of supply that we could drag up in the UK, even if it were viable. Now, when it comes to the point about the government being unstrategic in, in energy markets, <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with it. But the issue there is not that it didn't invest in fracking. The issue is it didn't bring forward home insulation earlier than is happening now. It didn't invest quick and fast enough in an array of not just renewables, also, the ability to make sure the electricity bid, grid is much better at not wasting energy, of making sure it optimizes the time where we need energy at different times. Those are the massive strategic mistakes of the government, 
not kind of going into the dead end that was the fracking market. And I tell you, look, we could have had a big fracking industry in this country and we would still be in the trouble that we're in right now because of those international markets. Well, look, I don't disagree with you that our energy strategy across the board, you know, has been catastrophically badly managed. You and I agree totally on that point. And yes, you're right. The amount of gas that we extract from, 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 you know, from the northwest of England is not going to impact the global price of gas, but it could give us surety of supply. But, gentlemen, thank you, both of you, for a civil debate around whether we should be fracking in the northwest of England <laughs> and both putting your points of view very clearly and with passion. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's two sides of a debate. It is extraordinary to me, you know, that all over the world... Uh, the fracking process for gas is used, and yet in this country, through hysteria, that it's going to cause gigantic earthquakes, uh, we've decided. It's funny, isn't it? We think going green means we don't make steel here, we don't extract gas here, we just let somebody else do it and then import it back to us, which means in net CO2 terms, actually, it's an even higher output than it would be. But that's OK, because the Prime Minister can say CO2 production in Britain is down 44% since 1990, and much of the reason is we've exported all of that, same with coal, exported it to other countries. To me, it doesn't make sense. Let me know, do you think we should be fracking in the northwest? Yes or no? GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, France, who I mentioned earlier in terms of electricity, the fishing wars, the row with France is getting worse. Jersey, very much in the crosshairs of this. Where does it go next? With household bills set to rise by £800 this year for electricity and gas, uh, this is not some academic debate about energy strategy. This is something that's going to affect every single one of you, and it matters. And I just feel so strongly that both we and other European countries have made some pretty catastrophic strategic decisions. And Mr Putin is there in the Kremlin laughing his socks off. That's my view. What do you think? Well, James says to me, tidal flow... Energy needs to be rolled out. The Channel Islands have some of the biggest tides in the world. You know what? I've always, James, been amazed that we haven't made tidal power work properly because we know 100 years from today what the high tide time is off Dover and what the strength of that tide is going to be. So I've always wondered why that's not been made to work and perhaps we'll try and get somebody in over the next few weeks to explain that to us. Ray has sent this in to GB News. We are at the mercy of Putin. He's been turning Ukraine gas off for years. And that is right. That is right. You know, Putin turning off the gas, it has happened before. Christopher says, at some point, natural gas will run out. What do we do then? Do you know what? Actually, you know, we've had all these arguments. I, mean, I remember back in the early 70s being told that oil would run out. Well, there's no sign of oil running out. Um, and, of course, the higher the price of these things go, the more fields become actually potentially profitable. So it ain't going to run out any time soon in terms, of its, in terms of its load on the earth. The problem is that we are living on imported electricity. We're living on too much of our gas. Some is produced in the North Sea, but too much of it is being imported. We're living hand-to-mouth with these things. And strategically, we have a major fallout with our neighbours. They simply could close us down. And just think, 
you know, of a world we live in today, which is computerised and digitised. If the electricity goes off, what on earth would we do? Patricia says on email, we should be taking advantage of tidal energy. Another one. On the West Coast, we have two tides every day. Crazy not to use, as well as wind, fracking and nuclear. Yeah, I mean, fine. You know, having a mix of energy is right. But having the insane over-reliance on wind is leading us to this row about gas. Nigel says, it's an absolute disgrace that we should be potentially held over a barrel by Mr Putin. We should be using our own resources, and that's what I feel very, very strongly. Fishing wars, this is not going away. This argument is not going away. And whether the French threats to turn off the electricity to Jersey and the United Kingdom are correct or not... Who is to say? It would be perhaps a very extreme thing to do. But the threats, potentially, of stopping us having a proper Christmas by blockading goods at French ports, well, we've seen uh, the French behave like this time and time again. I'm joined now by the president of Generation Frexit, Charles-Henri Gaulois. Charles-Henri, I have to ask you this. Why do you hate us so much? No, don't worry. I, I don't say to. Well, maybe you I, don't. It's quite... Maybe you don't. But friend, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? A neighbour being threatened in the way that French politicians have over the last couple of weeks. No, I think it's totally counterproductive and basically quite irresponsible because we have many also French interests and French exchanges with the UK. So it's quite counterproductive. And I, I think that, yes, there is a, an issue on the deal, but the UK is abiding by the deal. And France should blame not the UK, shouldn't threaten the UK, but the EU, because it's the EU that has negotiated the deal. And the, EU, the issue for France is, you know, um, you, you only the, the boats that have been fishing during uh, uh, between uh, 2012 and 2016 yeah. can fish. But you have many, many small boats uh, for France which don't have some recording system and they cannot prove that they were fishing. So basically the UK just applying the deal, but the deal was badly negotiated by Michel Barnier. So I think the French government should blame Barnier, they should blame the EU, well, not the UK actually... which is abiding uh, the deal. Actually, you're right. I mean, this deal wasn't negotiated by France. It was negotiated by Monsieur Barnier um, and by the European Union. But I've got to tell you this. Over 95% of French applications to fish in British waters were accepted by us. And I was contacted today by a fisherman on the Kent coast. He said, if I want to fish in UK waters, I've got to buy a boat that's under 33 feet... I've got to pay 70,000 quid for a licence to fish in British waters. But if you're French, you can come and fish in British waters for free. I mean, so understand why on this side of the channel uh, there is some considerable upset about this, let alone what's happening environmentally. But let me just ask you one more thing. The opinion polls yesterday suggesting that this newcomer to French politics who hasn't even declared his hand yet as a presidential candidate, has now overtaken um, Marine Le Pen, is now second in the opinion polls uh, to President Macron. Eric Zemmour, now some people say he is a hard right, uh, prejudiced against Islam. What do you make of this phenomenon of Zemmour? No, I think his, his purpose is quite basic. He just says 
that France cannot handle 300,000 people each year coming to France. So he says that France should just, uh, should just uh, totally stop immigration. And he goes more like that because he says, and I think it's, a, it's good sense to say, if you have a, a foreigner in France doing some crimes, he should be taken back to his country. So basically, he's very focused on immigration. Not only, and he, he acknowledged that uh, for the immigration, we will have uh, um, issues with the EU. So he's not for Frexit, but if he wants to apply its policies, he will have to, uh, to confront the European Union. So it's an uh, interesting uh, okay. campaign. We will see what happens. I think if he goes uh, second, then he will, uh, he will win some electorate from Les Républicains, which is a right-wing party, and also from Marine Le Pen. So... He has some changes. Maybe it's more chances than Marine Le Pen to, to win. It's certainly interesting. It's a phenomenon, uh, and it's happened very, very quickly. And whatever happens, good or bad, uh, we're going to keep talking about France here on GB News, and thank you for joining us this evening. On to domestic politics, the state of our domestic politics. Most of you will know the name Aaron Banks. Aaron Banks, the Bristol-based businessman, who decided he would get involved in politics. And he got involved in politics for one really very simple reason. He'd previously supported the Conservative Party, but he just felt... That, that, that picture, by the way, is very inappropriate because it's got the EU flag behind him. I, and I think that's when he was visiting me in the European Parliament. But Aaron decided, Aaron decided that the campaign for us to get our independence as a country was something that really, really mattered. And he got involved uh, and he set up Leave.eu... Uh, he did some remarkable things, uh, particularly with social media, during the EU referendum campaign. But prior to that, he committed a sin for which he has been punished. Yes, he was there yesterday at the Court of Appeal. And here's what happened. Uh, and there's a lesson in this for the way this country organises politics and why it's so difficult to get change. In 2014, I led UKIP and we won the European elections. It was the first time since 1906 that a party that was not the Labour or Conservative Party had won a national election. And as we went into the 2015 general election campaign, Aaron Banks decided he wanted to support me and he gave me a million pounds, a very significant sum of money to a party the size of UKIP. But he gave me a million pounds. Yesterday's court case, all these years later, was about this. Because UKIP, despite having won a national election didn't already have two MPs in Parliament, we weren't deemed to be a proper political party, and therefore his donation became subject to inheritance tax. And that was the appeal that he lost yesterday in the courts in London, so he faces a £200,000 or so bill for giving money, legal money, to a UK political party. What does that mean? It means it is actually virtually impossible for a new political party to challenge the establishment in this country. It's very hard to raise money because you get penalised for doing so. It is very, very difficult with a first-past-the-post system to break through. I got, as leader of that party, four million votes, more votes than the SNP, the Lib Dems and Plaid added up together. And yet we got one seat in Parliament. In any other country in Europe, we'd have been probably a coalition partner. 
So all of you that keep writing in saying, when are you going to get back into politics, have to understand there is the closed shop of British politics that makes it very, very difficult for anything new or fresh to come along. And we need fundamental reform of politics in this country if we're going to get a variety of fresh voices in our parliament and there as part of our lawmaking decisions. I actually look back on what we achieved through those years and think it was nothing short of a miracle. It's hard, a point I was making to Lawrence Fox here last night. One of the M25 protesters, indeed one of the leaders, has been caught as a globetrotter. Yes, that's right, despite campaigning for greener living. According to the Mail Online, Cameron Ford spent four months touring Canada, taking 8,500-mile return flights and travelling hundreds of miles to see the country. The environmentalist then bought an environmentally unfriendly old diesel van and used it to tour for hundreds of miles around continental Europe with a girlfriend. After returning from his second extended holiday, he saw no contradiction in joining protests, stopping other people from travelling, stopping other people from getting to work, stopping other people themselves from catching flights or indeed attending family funerals or whatever else it may be. What a bunch of hypocrites. I'm very pleased the Prime Minister talked about them in the terms that he did from the stage yesterday. I'm very pleased the Home Secretary has talked about these, these eco-warriors uh, people who actually are prepared to stop an ambulance getting to hospital, even if that person's life is at risk. I'm pleased the government's talking tough, but they're good at talking tough. Let's see whether finally they do deliver on this. In a moment, I will be talking to Dr Andy Palmer, the former boss of Aston Martin and an expert in electric cars. It's that time of the day. Yep, it's pub time. And we're here in the GB News pub for Talking Pints. I'm here with the former chief executive of Aston Martin, Dr Andy Palmer. Andy, welcome. Thank you very to much. To Talking Pints. Look, looking forward to this. Thank very you. Very good. <laughs> what, the drink or the, or, or the conversation or both? Well, we'll see how both go. Mm. But, the, but, the, but the drink is very, very good. You've been described by Auto Express as the most influential... British person in the global automotive business. That's, uh, wow, that's pretty big stuff. So I have to ask you, how did your career and all this begin? Um, how did you get to a position where that sort of thing said about you? Uh, they, were, they were very kind. Uh, well, there must have been something behind it. <laughs> um, I left school at 15 and became... 15? 15 and at 16 became an apprentice, so that was... That was the route, uh, inspired by my father, who bought me an A-series engine when I, was, when I was... Do you mean 14? You didn't go to university? I didn't, well, I didn't go to university in the traditional sense. I kind of caught up later yeah. uh, at, at, at night schools and, um, and what have you. Um, and I, I did my apprenticeship, um, eventually ended up at British Leyland... Um, was fortunate. What a memory. What a memory. So right in the middle of the sort of red rob robo times. Yeah. Um, they were good enough to put me through a master's degree in engineering. Um, came to the period of time when the Japanese industry was so important. And I read a book called The Machine That Changed the World and thought I'd better go and get a bit of that. Um, so I ended up going to Nissan. Uh, was that when they invested money in Sunderland? Yeah. Yeah, actually I joined just as they were... They were setting up engineering function uh, in the UK, mm -hmm. um, and I joined basically uh, uh, 
as part of that and eventually ended up running Nissan's engineering in Europe. Um, and then the, the alliance happened with, with Renault. Uh, Renault essentially took control of Nissan. Yes. I, I was asked to go to Japan and run the light commercial vehicle business. So I transformed, I guess, from being just a pure engineer into a, into a business guy. Um, and then it really took off, and I eventually ended up being the chief operating officer of Nissan, number two to Mr. Ghosn. Sometimes we don't talk Gosh. about Mr. Yeah, Ghosn well, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. uh, And then seven years ago, I got this, this, this telephone call that said, do you want to be the chief executive of Aston Martin? Couldn't believe it, could you? I, look, I went to school five miles down the road, <laughs> and it was... It was, it was the schoolboy dream. <laughs> it, it, well, yes, exactly, um, and I couldn't say no. And so I had that opportunity to, to live out a dream that I'd, I'd had had since I was 20 years old, which was to, to run a car company. And the glamour? And the glamour, yes. The Aston Martin, James Bond and all the rest of it. Well, it's great to see the, 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 Jane, the new... The I haven't new seen movie. it yet. Yeah. Well, it's got four, four Aston Martins in, and I was really, really proud to, to put the cars in that movie. You've had an amazing career, but what really interests me is that you're very, very much in the vanguard of electric cars, of battery production. Um, and I'm going to tell you this, Andy, I'm a bit sceptical about all this. Hmm. Um, I'm a bit sceptical about what the price of these cars is going to be. I'm a bit sceptical about the battery life, the range. I'm a bit sceptical about how on earth you recycle these... Because... Basically, the batteries are vast, aren't they? Yes, I mean, they are. It's a, it's a, an electric car is sort of a carapace and a battery, basically. About 50% of the cost of the, the, the car is the battery. Yeah. And, and they're big, heavy, heavy brutes that you have to deal with. Um, but I'm sceptical, and, and I'm even more sceptical about where this, where this energy is going to come from. I mean, you know, if we're burning, if we're burning trees... That come across the north, that come across the Atlantic from North America, and we burn them in Yorkshire. I mean, that's hardly green to me. It doesn't sort of add up to me. And if we're burning natural, frankly, if we're burning natural gas, yeah, to, to charge batteries. So, I just need some convincing all round about this. So, so explain to me. And obviously, the Prime Minister, you know, is a big advocate of this. And I know that if I was to go out and buy a Tesla, I'd get amazing tax breaks on it. Mm -hmm. So, convince a sceptic that electric cars really are the future. Well. First of all, look, I was the architect of the Nissan LEAF, which is what yep. you're referring to. Yep. So, obviously, I spent a great deal of my career um, basically bringing electric cars to market. And, and, and by the way, I was working on, on, on fuel cell, hydrogen fuel cells at the same time. So, But I see this is what interests me. Mm. This is what interests me. Doesn't hydrogen also have amazing potential? Yeah, yeah, yes, it does. And I think I'm going to advocate electric cars, but I'm also going to say that government should not dictate... A particular solution otherwise you end up with with a problem like diesel where, where we've been told to buy diesels and, and, we, suddenly, all, and we all did and, and we all did and suddenly you've got some unintended consequences I think what, what has to happen is governments around the world have to set the targets so whatever it is zero zero co2 uh, uh, X amount of particulates not whatever really, not really achievable is it but what you've got to do is is then you've got to you've got to get the engineers working on yeah. on that and, and Look, it's in terms of cost, and they are expensive, in terms of CO2, uh, an electric vehicle uh, uses way more carbon to manufacture mm -hmm. than a traditional mm -hmm. internal combustion mm -hmm. engine. But, of course, it's zero tailpipe, so over life you, you get the benefit. The, 
the, the, the, the key here is, uh, if I can take you, you back to when we were you know, younger mm. and the mobile telephone. You know, remember those mobile telephones. Only, only wealthy bankers could afford them. They're very expensive. Fast forward to today, everybody's got a mobile phone. It, it comes down to something called the Moore's Curve. And the Moore's Curve is about basically you bring in volume and, and your, your cost reduces uh, almost exponentially. Yeah. And electric cars are on Although I must on say, that iPhones curve. aren't that cheap these days. But they're, anyway. not, they're not that cheap, <laughs> but, but there, are, there are methods of getting you into yeah. one uh, um, and making it affordable. So the democratisation of net zero carbon is really, really important. And, and, and the, the point there is that you've got to stop talking about zero emission and you've got to start talking about net zero carbon. In other words, when you consider the, the future transportation, you've also got to take into account the carbon that's used to manufacture the battery, manufacture right. the car. And you've been honest about that, that it, 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 it takes more CO2 to manufacture in the first yeah, place. Yeah, look, um, if, you, if you were to take a, a traditional battery today, remember I'm an advocate for EC, EVs, but right? No, I mean, so, yeah. so, so if you were to take a, a battery today, it takes about seven kilowatt hours to produce a one kilowatt hour battery. So a, a massive amount of energy in creating the battery. Hmm. What you've therefore got to do is address that, which means, of course, that you, you build the vehicles uh, using sustainable, sustainable energy. Now, within that mix, you, you need to have the alternative technologies considered. And what are they? Fuel cell, mm. for sure. But remember that 99% of hydrogen is produced from uh, oil and gas. So you've got yeah. to move to yeah. new, a new methodology of, 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 of creating uh, hydrogen. Fuel cell, expensive, so there's an intermediary solution which is called hot hydrogen, which is basically combusting hydrogen in an internal combustion engine. Quite interesting because you're using uh, existing assets and a little bit about some, something there uh, in, in line with what you see in Formula One movement. Mm. And I was looking at HVO on this programme mm -hmm. last week. Looking at HVO, because, you know, living in Kent, there was no fuel, um, and, but a couple of local businesses were using HVO, yes. which, of course, hydrogenates you know, used vegetables. So there, I mean, there are. So there are. And e-fuels. And e E-fuel e takes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere mm. and turns it into gasoline. So there are lots of alternatives. So my, my view is that you, you can't simply mandate one technology. Mm. What you've got to do is you've got to allow the free flow of ideas, okay. you've got to create a Darwinism, and you've got to allow for the, for so, the survival of the fittest. So the manufacturer of these cars will become more efficient in time, the price will come down, and you quoted the example of, of, yes. of, of mobile phones, cell phones. Fine. Where's the electricity coming from? Well, because if, if we... There are 36 million cars on the road. Yes. Right? Uh, you know, if from 2030 there are going to be no new sales of petrol or diesel car, where's the electricity coming from? I mean, we've got real problems of, of energy supply right now. We have indeed, and, and of course you need to plan... You need to plan for that. Look, the good, the good is, news... Is government genuinely planning for these things? Does it have the long-term strategy to be able to do this? Some governments around the world clearly, clearly are. That obviously means ours, isn't um, it? <laughs> others, others are you're, taking a little you're time not to get there. That, are you? <laughs> <laughs> the, the point is that in, in most cases, and if you do it well, um, first of all, most electric cars are charged in the night time. And, and actually, you, you're, you're, you're not... Hence, drawing. when other electricity... When, when other electricity is not being so used. Yeah. The second part is, if you've got enough electric cars out there, you can also go from car to grid. Um, mm. After the... Uh, I was living in Japan during the, the, the tsunami, uh, oh, the yeah. great tsunami, and, and saw 
you know, basically people perishing because, because they didn't have electricity. Um, and, and I bought very quickly to market through Nissan something called Leaf to Home. And that was the ability to send electricity in the other direction and, and power, yeah. power a home. Now, it, you know, if, if you're smart and if you're holistic about your, your energy solutions and if you've got an industrial strategy that backs that up, mm. um, then basically you, you, you can use the cars that are out there as a storage medium. Now, OK, fine. Now, the battery is a huge part of the car. It's, it takes a lot of lithium. Yes. A lot of lithium, which used to be valueless, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not anymore. It takes a huge amount of lithium to produce these batteries. I am told by those that are very, very sceptical about electric cars that there's no method yet being produced for genuinely recycling these lithium batteries. Is that correct? No, it's not correct. It's expensive, but it's, it's um, lithium and indeed most of the minerals that go into a battery can be recycled. Um, all right. if, I, if I put it into, into steps, first life of battery in the car. Uh, during the life of a car, the charge drops to about 80% of its new, so you get a decay, mm -hmm. and then you essentially, the battery is no longer any use. So it goes into second use. Second use of battery is for, for example, storage, storing energy from wind farms or solar farms. At the end of that life, then you need to take the battery back, back to a, what's called a black mass, which means you don't take it right away. In the terms way of storage... You know, if, if, if we charge up the battery of an electric car, how long will that charge hold for? It'll diminish with every hour that goes by to some extent. Um, it will look, a battery will, will do, its ability to hold a charge will diminish over a six or seven year life. Mm -hmm. So, and the same as, the same as your mobile phone, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, so, so after six or seven years, you need to move it on to second, <coughs> yeah. on to second life. And then third life is about taking it back, back to black mass. You can put it in a, in a shredder, you can bring it back, you don't need to take it all the way back to the mineral level, but you can bring it back to the compound level that, 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 mm -hmm. that, that, that can be used in new batteries and you can recycle. Now that circular economy is really, really, really interesting, but at the moment it's also right. not cost effective. Electric cars are the future then? As sure as... As, as death and tax. They are, they, they, they are the future. <laughs> that's a pretty certain, uh, that's a no, pretty certain it, answer. Absolutely certain. Now, but on the, on, the, on the edges, there will be alternative technologies. There will be hydrogen in, in yeah. HGVs. There will be, I, I think, e-fuels used in sports cars. So, okay. so it, the internal combustion is not gone forever, I don't believe. But, but you're still a fan of internal combustion yourself, aren't you? Of course, I, I, I love. You know, absolutely. And, and you were a racing driver at one point? I, I would like to say that I'm still a racing driver. <laughs> really? But, but, but not a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your sin, is it? That's my, that's my passion, I have to say. It's, yeah. it's still, uh, when I can, 24-hour races. Well, I have to say, Andy Palmer, you've had an amazing career in the industry. You've won the most astonishing accolades. I've learned a bit tonight about electric cars. Uh, I'm still not totally convinced. But, hey, that was Dr Andy Palmer. What do you think? Right, OK, we get to the end of the programme and the favourite part of the show for some, although Talking Pints is my favourite. And it is Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions, I don't see them and I have to answer them live on air. So I suppose it keeps me on edge. Jacqueline is first up tonight. How would you deal with the massive black hole in the government's finances without raising taxes? Well, the problem is if you raise taxes, if you raise taxes and get your tax levels wrong... 
Rather than that increasing the amount of money that comes into the Exchequer, it can decrease the amount that comes into the Exchequer. Think back to the super taxes of the 1970s. They didn't increase the amount of money wealthy people paid. Wealthy people decided just not to live in this country. And I think the whole point about this economic debate is British productivity has been poor. Growth is now slowing. Boris is right about one thing. He's picked up something that I was saying for years, that the over-reliance on cheap foreign labour did lead to productivity going down, did lead to de-skilling. And we need more people like Dr Andy Palmer. We need more people learning engineering skills. We need more people. In fact, Andy, you're sponsoring some people, aren't you, to do some of these things? I have um, a charity which is about taking disadvantaged kids and, um, and taking them through apprenticeships. So I essentially pick them up at around about 14 years old, yep. try to avoid them getting into gangs and what have you, yep. um, try to act a, a, as a steward to take them through the STEM subjects. Once they're 16, then basically I pay the first two years of their apprenticeship. And they become productive members. Of so there we are. More productivity, more growth and supply-side reform part of leaving the European Union so we can get rid of a lot of meddlesome regulations and lift the burden off the backs of our five and a half million self-employed small businesses. Pippa asks me, if it were necessary to have qualifications to be an MP, what would be the most important skills? If it was necessary to have qualifications to be an MP or indeed an MEP, um, I wouldn't have qualified. It's really interesting. You couldn't work in the European Parliament, even at the lowest level, unless you had a degree. So for people like me who've not been to university, I wouldn't have even qualified. Um, look, let me say this to you. The most important qualification for being a Member of Parliament is having experience of life. Not coming, not coming straight out of Oxbridge into a back office and then becoming Prime Minister or Chancellor of the Exchequer. And if you think that was a dig at David Cameron um, and George Osborne, it was. MJ asks, who is running the country, Boris or Carrie? Oh! But not only do we not produce enough electricity without importing it from France, not only do we not produce enough gas, but Boris has announced that about a third of the country is going to be rewilded, which means it won't produce any food. And I think Carrie's influence on all of this is quite extraordinary. We showed you speaking, uh, sh showed her speaking at the Fringe at a Stonewall sponsored event. She is very, very powerful. Boris is running the country, but Carrie's influence is massive. Right, OK, that's it. It's done. I'm over. I'm back here on Monday with you.